Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Dan Zaya-Joseph writes and talks about mental health, resilience and leadership. He left his job as a combat engineer in the military in 2022. A soldier in his platoon surviving a suicide attempt inspired him to write a book to educate incoming leaders on the importance of proactively strengthening mental health and resilience. His book, Backpack to Rucksack, Insight into Leadership and Resilience by Military Experts, shares stories about people dealing with the trauma of combat as well as drawing on research in this area and Dan's Master's in Organisational Psychology Qualification. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Short and sweet intro. Hey, hey no, that was a perfect intro. I appreciate it. So awesome to talk to you. And It's yeah, so love, amazing. You've just that. been showing me the beach at San Diego outside your window and coming from a rainy peak district. It's really, really amazing. Exactly. I want to I come visit London again, but uh, yeah. It's yes, we've just been planning your book tour. <laughs> That's right. Yep. <laughs> but thank you so much. I'm fascinated to talk to you about resilience and your experience and your research. Um, but, but how did you get to be talking about this? Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so um, for me, what happened was I left the Army last year. And for anybody who's a veteran, you'll understand this. I, um, I didn't realize how different I became after I served in the military. I, I honestly felt like I was the same person as when I went in. And then when I got out, I noticed things were different, but it was very difficult to put into words. Just something felt different. You know, the air felt different around me. Um, I, I really started reflecting on the troops, the men and women that I served with. Um, and I started really thinking about Cody, who was my soldier who survived his suicide attempt. Um, I had talked to another friend of mine, Austin, who's, um, he was a Marine and now he's currently an army officer. Uh, and we were talking about that and he let me know that he had 13, uh, men from his unit that he knows personally, 13 of them had taken their lives after Afghanistan. And so I started realizing that something was definitely off because why are people hurting like this? And I started a little journal prompt because I've, I've gone through therapy. I've done some counseling of my own because I've had my issues before I joined the military. And I started writing out the sort of the stories of people that brought life and light into my, into my life, who brought encouragement um, in the military. And I started thinking about them and doing sort of a meditative self-reflection on what did these people bring that should be thought of more it should we should all lean into this more in the military um in in contrast to the darkness in contrast to the heavy stuff and so a journal prompt turned into a 400 page book uh, essentially i just wanted to process in my own mind what does healthy leadership look like what does mental health look like um how can men specifically speak with emotional language to describe feeling states and trauma that they've repressed for decades, some of them. 
um, because I, I got to know and love some brothers of mine who were deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq and who saw some things that are so hard to put into words. And man, just the weight that I felt on my chest on their behalf was so heavy. And, and then I shared some of the prompts I wrote with them and they said, Hey, this, you just described something I've not been able to put into words ever. And then I realized, okay, I should probably put something else out there and have more discussions, you know? Um, not that I have the answers, but I simply wanted to create a space for discussion, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And well done on opening this up. But it seems so it's recent to be talking about this and it feels like it's too late for a lot of the people that you knew, which is incredibly sad. But when you were journaling about those qualities and the leadership that inspired you and you felt were really positive like what sort of things were coming up and and how different was that from the general experience that you'd had in your military career yeah so a lot of it had to do with just being a good human being you know being humble being considerate of others um not instigating fights not ever not ever compounding an already tense situation finding ways to stay positive, finding ways to stay engaged. So I add each chapter of, of this book have nuggets of advice from a particular individual. And um, yeah, that it really, really shaped my perspective. So just thinking of some of some of the excerpts of what people told me, one of them was whenever you come home, take the cape off. Essentially, you're not a superhero when you're around family and friends. You're not going to wear your rank. You're not going to wear your accolades and walk around with sort of an air of, of of arrogance is what it comes off as. Be Just be a person. You know, approach people with vulnerability and with authenticity. And these are things that, man, you know, it flies in the face of some of the messaging we get in the military, right? And so, but but these are service members who live by that. And they don't allow their rank, they don't allow their uniform to create an impermeable barrier between them and others because that's suffocating. You know, anybody's stuck behind that, okay, they may look strong, but it's a facade and they're not able to breathe. There's no oxygen back there. And it puts them in an isolated state because they're attempting to put up a front that takes so much cognitive and emotional energy to reinforce because it's artificial. And so it begs the question of what's the balance on being strong, being somebody who's trusted by their government to have lethal force against an enemy, but at the same time, having the ability to be flexible, to not be rigid, to have self-care. I mean, these are super important concepts. And and I'll, I'll end with this. Um, what I gathered from these folks is that if, if in the military, we look at our machines and our equipment, our weapon systems, our vehicles with a mind that invests in maintenance and self-care, that's how we perceive or not self-care, but um, I guess maintenance and, and just ongoing upkeep with all these inanimate objects. How much more important is it that we need to, to offer the same type of maintenance for the brain? For the neurophysiology of these men and women who are exposed to things and seeing things and training for things all the time. And that's what I really want to see our military invest in, 
is the way the same way we break down a, a weapon system and break down a vehicle and clean it up and fix it up you know let's do that for the human brain as well and we are there i'm not the only person with this idea and i totally get that there are a bunch of people and a bunch of organizations moving this direction i'm just simply a voice in a in a sea of voices right now which i'm happy to say that are we're all seeing the value in this you know for the future i mean it seems obvious when you're saying it but has this just not been the case for up until kind of recent times there haven't been these voices and and in which case what what was leadership looking like and what was the military looking like before well, I can say for my friends who've been to combat, because um, I haven't been combat deployed. I was in a non-deployable unit. But my, my friends who have been to war have let me know that back in their day, back in the early 2000s, the op tempo was so high, nobody could afford to be broken. You know, it was just go, go, go all the time. And they didn't have the vocabulary and for, for mental health, for emotions, for feeling states. They didn't have that awareness um, from a cultural viewpoint, it was it was looked down upon. There was a stigma there because war fighting was, and and I'd like to study this more. I really want to study World War II veterans and Vietnam veterans and Korean War veterans to see w- generationally what's what are we missing with the vocabulary and how did that impact people. But I know from the folks back in the the first wave in Iraq and whatnot, um, man, they just they just repressed everything and self-medicated by the way there was a lot of alcohol a lot of a lot of um um you know medication so whether it's i don't want to say necessarily narcotics but painkillers you know they would just alleviate the pain and then just get back on it and so the same way if their knee was injured if their shoulder was injured whatever they had going on physically they would just numb it out same thing would happen emotionally you know and i have friends who are on their third marriages because their first two marriages were during the wars and they couldn't hold those marriages together because they weren't even present. So how could they be a spouse, you know? And so looking back now, they realize like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going through and I didn't know how to tell anybody I was going through that. You know, they didn't have the self-disclosure for it. So now we're seeing with this new generation with social media, with access to the internet and, and just the amazing connectivity we have as, as humans across the globe, um, people have more awareness of things, you know, and the important thing to realize now is just because we're aware that something is off doesn't necessarily give us the language for it. We need to be intentional in that by educating others. And so I'd always tell my troops, you know, I'd always tell my soldiers, go work on your education, go read books, enrich your minds, because the stronger you become, as an individual, the stronger the unit is going to be, but it takes intention, you know, and encouragement for people to go look at the ugly stuff in life. Look at the stuff that there's so much shame and stigma around, um, even within our own minds. And so I wanted to remove that shame and let the troops know you have every right to strengthen yourself. You have every right to investigate what's going on inside of your heart, inside of your mind. Because that will make you stronger on the battlefield. It won't make you weaker. And I think that's kind of the, you know, the assumption that's made incorrectly. That, oh, you're going to make everyone a victim. You're going to make everybody just too soft. And they're going to complain about everything. That's not the case. You Mm -hmm. make them more resilient, actually. 
Yeah. I, when you were talking there, it seemed like one of the themes that comes up in this podcast, even though we weren't directly talking about the military, but was this old-fashioned idea of resilience, which is that kind of not showing weakness, just carrying on, not talking. Those That's really struck me as similar to what you were describing with this old way of, of dealing. What do you think resilience has looked like in the military particularly? And and then what what would you like resilience to look like or what do you think the true definition is? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start there. I'll, I like to think of resilience as a buffering capacity, if you will. It's, it's like absorption. So just like if you take a, a vehicle off-roading, the shock absorbers, they, they absorb the impact of the terrain. So as you crush these mountains or these, these rocks and boulders and wadis, as you're driving the Humvee down, it, a, a vehicle with healthy suspension is able to absorb the impact of each one of those you know, craters or gaps or whatever you're hitting, right? Um, and resilience, it, it depends on upkeep. So just like you'd maintain the shocks and the suspension of that vehicle, self-care rest getting sleep having healthy diet healthy hygiene healthy social support all of this stuff goes into reinforcing the neurophysiological aspects of the brain and that's where resilience is sourced it's it's not a static state of mind it's a dynamic um process it's a dynamic balance so as life throws us different things whether it's you know, stressful situations, finances, diseases, um, brokenness in our relationships, loss of people. Life is going to throw us very difficult situations to deal with. Um, the healthier we are, the more robust we are emotionally, the more equanimical we can be, the more even keeled when those storm winds are blowing. We'll know how to handle that. And um, that, that to me is what healthy resilience is. And I believe that an unhealthy form of it, sort of an artificial form of resilience may look like white knuckling, like in recovery groups, they say this, you know, somebody's no longer drinking alcohol or no longer doing a drug, but they're just sitting there white knuckling because they want to do it. And they're going crazy inside because, you know, if you stop that self-medicated process, well, the underlying issue is still there. You know, there's anger, there's resentment, there's shame, there's fear, whatever it is. But, you know, so true resilience is addressing the underlying aspects and, and having an overall healthy system. It's, it's, it's a constellation of variables involved. It's not just a, a, a single entity that we're dealing with, you know. And, and I noticed, again, going back to the old school resilience, if you will, it was more of just, bot, you know, bottle it up, stuff it down, and if you got a drink, drink if you whatever you got to do to medicate but you know when you're on the battlefield or when you're around your family they need you to be this particular type of individual and that's just not human that's very robotic and rigid structures break mm-hmm. you know eventually they're going to break so you got to have flexibility there and when you were talking about that resilience and what it looked like it seemed really easy to imagine being able to build that in my life as a kind of general advice that I was taking. But then I was thinking, when you're in combat, it must just be so hard to 
prioritize that self-care is it possible i mean i don't have any experience of being in the military or on combat is that something that's done during and after or is that something that you can do in those very stressful situations the only thing that i gathered from my friends that helps is is love in those situations and this is the crazy part right love who talks about love when we're talking about war <laughs> But what blew my mind, and it was so cool because these these folks would just drop it. Like they would just drive, just come out of their mouth. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, like let's circle back to that because what you just said is paradigm shifting for me. You know, in a war zone, you love the people next to you. There's no other way to put it because you want them to come back from their patrol, from whatever movement they're doing out there in the field. You want them to come back alive. And you don't care about the paperwork. You don't care about what the uniform looks like. You care about your brother and sister being in one piece, being alive. And because of that focus, that's what energizes you. That's what motivates you. It's a driving force that, I mean, there's that phrase that love conquers all. And in the face of so much pain and so much suffering over there, I know my friends who've, who've seen a lot and have done a lot for our nation, they focus more on keeping people alive and keeping people safe. And what happens is that sort of loss when they get back and that loss of that love, it creates a vacuum. And that's where many of them take their lives is because there's something missing and it's, it's huge. It's, it's built into their identity. Um, and again, it's difficult for them to put these things into words. And so it feels like an existential loss. And that's when, you know, they veer towards suicidality or depression or just self-destructive uh, tendencies and behaviors. But what was profound is when, when several of them told me that they had leaders over there who, you know, in between their patrols told them, get some rest, you know, focus on, on recharging yourself because the battle is still going and you're going to go back out there. But in the meantime, again, they would focus on taking care of one another they'd focus on the bigger picture of of what they were doing there um and leadership had a big role in this because there were some leaders and there's books out there about it of some devastating scenarios in war where a leader was just completely selfish and in those units there were war crimes going on there were, there were homicidal tendencies going on um, that's very well documented and was televised around the world because people just deteriorated. Um, the the fabric of the morale deteriorated in such a way that it led to some dark situations. And so I'm not blaming leaders necessarily, but I'm saying leadership does a lot to set the culture and set the tone. Um, and encouraging, and I, I, I know this because I heard it in their voices, when they had leaders who encouraged them to love each other and encouraged them to, to think about war as protecting their families and themselves as, as a family that, that created a, a huge ripple effect that created, it, it induced calm in, in the midst of chaos. Mm. And what is it that can support those soldiers that come back you were talking about that time when they're returning and maybe don't have well the same situation or the same purpose that they had like what is it that you think 
could be in place that isn't now so that we can work towards reducing these horrible suicide numbers? You know, I, I don't know necessarily. That's why, that's mm. why I wrote this book to reflect on that. You know, for me, I love jujitsu and I, I, I do jujitsu with a lot of veterans, right? Combat veterans, amazing people. And that is a newfound sense of family and connection. That's, it's so primal and it's, it's visceral. And I needed that when I got out of the military. I love being on the mats. You know, it's restorative. Um, it's not for everybody, but it worked. You know, it helps me out. And I know that veterans, we have a very deep connection with each other that's hard to put into words. Even if we haven't served in the same branch, even if we don't, we don't even know each other. I was just at an air show hanging out with a 95-year-old um, Marine who was in Korea and he was in his, he was in his nineties and yet he would crack jokes at the air show that I would hear from a private, you know, in basic training in the army from the, you know, from 2020. Right. So it was this, this amazing connection. And I was there with his, his, his son and his grandson were there as well. And it was so cool. Cause here I was with grandpa cracking jokes, like we're, like we're buddies, you know, and he's got 60 years on me, basically. And what I, you know, just these profound, these profound aspects or these situations in my life shine light on the fact that veterans need other veterans because we vent the same way. We use, we use very same language and tonality that civilians might find kind of dark or kind of abrasive or whatever it is. But when you're a vet, it just, it just clicks. And, um, and I love it when we, you know, also like call each other up and check, check on each other. So I still check in with Cody. He's still alive today. He, my soldier survived a suicide attempt. Um, we're still in touch. I, I'm still in touch with Austin as well. Um, and, and several others because we want to check in on each other. We're, we're each other's family forever now. Um, being even just in training environments together uh bonded us in a very unique way because in the military we train as if you know we're at war we we train people so when they go to a, a war zone it's supposed to feel less stressful than tr training aspects i know that sounds crazy but you know we, we apply a lot of stress in the training environment that necessarily doesn't happen every single day in a combat zone um and so that did a lot to bond us with each other you know and connect us and and honoring that connection by staying in touch and being around each other in whatever capacity helps but it's it really is about connection and uh countering that sense of isolation that creeps in because it, it is a slow creep what it looks like is just i don't get along with civilians so you know today i'm just gonna hang out by myself and then today turns into a week turns into months turns into several months um and, and a lot of my friends who have struggled with depression and whatnot uh, after war, it, it's always that gradual, I just don't want to talk to anybody today. And then it turns into a long-term situation. And it's just important, again, to reach out. And I love telling them that I love them. You know, they're a brother or sister to me and that I care for them. In your book, you talk about the experience of some of the women in the military as well. But I was just thinking with, I don't know the statistics for america but in the uk 
the suicide rates for males are so much higher than females. And you'd already yeah. talked a little bit about what factors make soldiers particularly vulnerable. But I just wondered if you thought there were factors that make males particularly vulnerable with social conditioning. Just thinking back to when you were talking about kind of showing vulnerability and and being humble and, and whether society doesn't condition men to have the predisposition for those sorts of qualities. Yeah, I think so. In my studies, what I came across is that um, women tend to live out men by about 10 years, about a decade. And I think what happens, and I think I believe the ratio is like four to one, that men are four times more likely to succeed in a suicide than females. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a big discussion to have. Um, what I kind of, what I estimate is that women are more likely to find social support with, with one another. And they're more, I'd say just more emotionally intelligent than men when it comes to expressing their feelings and men, whether by, you know, nature or nurture will not do that. They won't disclose this stuff out loud. You know, I think studies have shown that most males don't even have one friend by the time they're in their like eighties or nineties or whatever it is towards the end of their life. They, they really don't have many people at all. They're very disconnected and isolated. And I think a lot of it has to do with the vocabulary, not having words to describe what they're feeling, not having the ability to communicate that. And that lack of communication, again, I believe it leads to isolation because because of shame. They don't feel, they feel as if they speak it, then it exists, which in reality, I mean, that's, that's never the case. You know, just because you don't know a diagnosis of something you have doesn't mean that that illness isn't there. But yet conceptually in our minds, we say, well, I'm just not going to talk about it because if I don't talk about it, then I'm not going to open the floodgates of whatever's behind that. But with passive aggressive, um, you know, reactions with subconscious behaviors, projection and transference and so many subtleties and nuances to our behaviors, it manifests what we're not speaking out loud. That comes out in our behaviors. And that's where I really want to shine a light for folks, especially for males who don't have either the capacity or haven't been trained on how to dialogue about what's going on inside of their minds. And it's amazing to me how much self-sabotage occurs, how much destruction of relationships occur. Um, again, going back to my friends who've been divorced several times, you know, they, they didn't have the ability to say what a boundary was or, you know, what was hurting them, what was affecting them negatively in a relationship. And this is with an intimate partner that they weren't even able to disclose their own feelings with. And if you're not going to disclose that with a person you're sharing a life with, how could you disclose it to anybody else? And so that's, that's kind of my, my hypothesis is that women have much more connection with one another and women have a, a way stronger ability to put into words what's going on experientially. And with men, there's a tendency to just close it off. Don't talk about it. Um, bottle, bottle it up, basically compartmentalize, which seems pragmatic and could be in, in fleeting moments, in transient moments. 
But if we're talking about compartmentalizing for an entire lifespan, oh man, there's a lot. That's like walking through a minefield, you know, and a subconscious minefield at that, by the way, which is even more excruciating because then people don't know why they're getting in fist fights or why they're cussing up a storm to somebody they love or flipping someone off on the road and, and road raging. I mean, these aren't, it's not because of the current stimuli in the environment. There's a backlog of emotions that haven't been addressed. And when there's an event, a very small event happening in real time, there's all this backed up data in the brain that says, let's just let it pour out right now. Let's get access to all these emotions. And um, yeah, this is a profound discussion to have with people to, to aid them in understanding that, hey, you're reacting right now to a present situation based on other feeling states that have nothing to do with the context going on today. And giving people, again, a time and space to kind of parse that out is super important. Dan, you're so articulate and knowledgeable about this. And when when did you start getting this knowledge? I mentioned in the intro that you've got a master's in organizational psychology. Was that pre-joining the military or post? And yes, I just wondered how long it's taken you to come to such such really interesting and conclusions and hypotheses. Well, I... Uh... I mean, wow. Yeah, I got my master's while I was a platoon leader in the army. But so in my college days, and I write about this, I was self-medicating a lot. I was drinking a lot of alcohol. I was numbing out on a lot of personal experiences and trauma that, you know, I experienced earlier in life. And everybody really, every human experiences some sort of trauma in their life. There's something called an ACE score, adverse childhood experience score. Um, Some people have one or two events throughout their childhood. Some people have a hundred events. It depends on what happened to them. And for me, I had some particularly salient uh, events that occurred during early childhood and that really impacted me and, and I was dissociated. And um, for for years, you know, since I was 17 years old um, in college, I just started drinking and started numbing out. And then I sought, eventually I sought therapy after I started jujitsu and, and began having anxiety attacks um, flashbacks that were happening on the mats in jujitsu. And it got me back into my body, but I was, oh man, a, a lot of flooding happened emotionally. And I didn't know what it was. And so I started feeling like heaviness in my chest. I couldn't breathe deep. I was breathing, you know, in the upper chest and hyperventilating and feeling hypervigilance that something was out to get me. And I didn't know what it was. It felt very nebulous and ethereal, but that something in the universe was coming after me. And uh, I eventually realized that this was um, a telltale sign of early childhood abuse and trauma. And so um, after a, a very dark chapter in my life, I had a dear friend of mine who was a DEA agent, complete awesome guy in my life. He's a, a masculine role model to me and, and just a male role model. And he broke this stigma that men are, you know, I, I thought men couldn't seek therapy and he completely destroyed that and said that he had a therapist and that he knew I was in a dark place and that he demanded that I go see his therapist. And I was like, that's allowed. I'm, I can go do that. And, you know, what a dumb moment. I mean, I, I, 
sorry, I don't mean to be condescending to anyone struggling, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, you idiot. Like you could, I could have hurt myself, you know, because I didn't know that I was allowed to talk about this stuff. I was so buried in that shame, you know, and avoidance. Um, and my buddy absolutely saved me from that. And when I went to the therapist's office and talked about what was going on in my body, I mean, he knew right away. He's like, oh, okay, well, this is a flashback. And you know, jujitsu is bringing it on. So let's explore that. Let's explore, you know, let's ask the question, why, why are you feeling that? You know, why is this memory coming to mind? What happened back in the day? And we got to it. We, we got to the root of that and it hurt. And I grieved a lot. I cried a lot. It was embarrassing, but I got over that. And then, uh, you know, after several, honestly, it took me several, a few months, of grieving it's pretty heavy um the healing started i mean the healing started in the grief because my ego defensive behaviors were then neutralized you know i could start to disassemble the walls in my life i could stop medicating as much you know it, it took a while um and it's not a perfect process anybody who's in recovery understands it's it's not linear and there's no shame in that because that's that's what human life looks like we're, we're humans you know we're not machines so i have to constantly tell myself that and give myself that grace if you will but um yeah so i i have a lot of crazy in my own life i have a lot of issues in my life personally but especially when i was in the military i realized as a leader it's so important not to inflict damage on others because of something that's off kilter inside of my heart I, I need to fix my issues or at least protect others from hurting in the same way that I hurt. You know, that was so important for me not to abuse others, not to make someone else feel insecure or wrong or guilty or shamed for something I'm feeling inside of me. And so I learned a lot about boundaries and therapy, how to have my own, but how to also protect other people's boundaries especially when they don't know that they have boundaries or deserve them. Um, as a leader, there's nothing cooler than telling someone who you have authority over to say, hey, by the way, these, these are your protective boundaries. Like, you have the right to push back. You have the right to say no. You know, giving that gift to others is so cool. And I could have either gone that route or I could have done what was done to me which is perpetuate the cycle of abuse. But I wanted things to end, like the buck stops with me. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not perfect, but I, I don't want to ever consciously offend or hurt somebody else because I'm hurting. And, and therapy and counseling really taught me that. And I'm, you know, I'm still working on it, but there were many times like I, I'd react to a situation in the military, you know, maybe not great, but I'd have to tell my soldiers, hey, that, that's on me. You know, I apologize. And, and, and then basically look at it like a problem set. I'd, I'd always tell the soldiers this attack problem sets together. Don't attack people. This isn't an ego trip where, you know, you cause this or you did it's No, dude, that is unhealthy and abusive very quickly. But if we say this problem sucks, this situation sucks, let's fix it together. A way for us to fix this that all stemmed from what I learned in, in therapy. And 
Yeah, I mean, I'm still on that journey. The book writing helps process this, but I think that, um, you know, and I don't mean to make myself sound like a paragon of growth or anything. I just, I'm, I'm blessed to have had the friends who were in my life to, uh, to call me out and to, to help me get the help that I needed, you know, um, because it takes a village. It certainly takes a village. This isn't a, a solo trip through life. Yeah. Oh, what an amazing story. And I guess also there's no, like sometimes it can take a lifetime or maybe a whole lifetime of not accessing that help and that change. I just wondered what first influenced you to start your military career and because I think you were 32 when you joined and yeah what was the decision there well so back then it was honestly it was going what was going on in the Middle East Uh, my parents are from Iraq my mom my dad passed away a few years ago my mom's still alive and um we're refugees from that country I was born in America but my parents grew up in the Middle East and as religious minorities they um they experienced you know, some, some pretty hellish times over there. And I was in America safe and sound with amazing opportunities and, you know, plenty of food and and education and whatnot. Um, and I was watching the news and seeing what was happening to women and children specifically is what was really, um, hurting me because I, because my mom told me stuff that, you know, she experienced and that other females, uh, in our, in our family experienced over there. And it's horrible. And, um, I had friends who were amazing people uh, in the military that were over in Iraq, mission after mission, helping, helping these, these people out. And they inspired me, you know, cause I had friends who were born in the United States, had nothing to do with the Middle East yet. They were going back to that place that my family escaped from. And they were trying to, to do their best to stop the bad guys from hurting people. Um, and I know that can be quite an oversimplification of war, but that was my purview because these are friends of mine that I, I grew to love and appreciate. Some of them were Navy SEALs. Some of them were pilots in the Navy, in the Army, and in different branches, the Marine Corps. And uh, yeah, and so just hearing their stories about risking their lives in these firefights day in and day out made me realize, I, you know, before I'm on my deathbed, I want to be able to say that I served in some capacity. And um, I just felt like I owed America something as an immigrant, as a child of immigrants. I, I felt conviction to to say thank you in a way that looked like putting on a uniform. And um, you can imagine with all the stuff happening in the Middle East right now with massacres and, and people dying in horrible ways, this is something where if like if anybody's listening to this and again they're a child of refugees of people who sought asylum from a war-torn country there's something that happens in our hearts that's so it's so private because it's difficult to say out loud it's difficult to tell people because we're we're afraid we're going to be misunderstood and perhaps we don't even understand fully because it's such a complex situation you know but there is something we feel when we see the news and we know we're safe you know, we're removed from it. And there's almost like this survivor's guilt because that could have been me. That could have been my story. And it's, it, again, this is so difficult to put into words. Uh, I'm actually writing a book on it to process this. And I'm trying to, when I'm writing a book on the perspective of a first-generation child 
of immigrant parents? And how do we wrestle with honor and shame? How do we wrestle with guilt? How do we wrestle with being in an amazing country that adopted us and provides us liberty and freedom, yet knowing that we come from a place where people are being devastated and who are hurting? There's so much emotion that goes into this. And um, I just, I, I know that so many of my peers and so many people in my shoes um, are struggling with this without a lot of words to talk about it. And um, yeah, so joining the military was a part of the healing process for me. That book sounds such an important piece of work. And I just wondered if you are reaching any conclusions as to how you get, how you look after yourself, particularly when we can see the images on the news at the moment. Like how how do you keep yourself safe and and cope with that? I think what it is, and, and I, I do need to add this to the book, but what it really comes down to is self-actualization. You know, because, so for me, you know, my parents are from Iraq, and then I grew up in America. So I'm I'm an American, but I have these, you know, roots from Iraq, right? The eth- My ethnicity and all of that. Um, but it's up to me as a as a human being to determine my identity and who I am and therefore determine how I'm going to serve others. Because my parents, of course, they're going to instill some cultural identity in me, right? But I'm as an American, I'm also discovering my own unique identity that my parents couldn't navigate because they didn't grow up in the States. And so they don't really have that jurisdiction. Because when you have a child not in your homeland, in an adopted country, that that child needs to assimilate. You know, there's going to be degrees of assimilation, learning the language, learning cultural behaviors, the, the idioms and the idiosyncrasies of the local populace. So I had to be, you know, an American child, but sometimes I didn't know what the proper English word was for certain things. So one funny example, my my dad would call every cereal in America Cheerios. <laughs> Whatever it was. <laughs> They didn't know that, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I grew up at a friend's house, like, and there's like, you know, Cocoa Puffs. I'm like, oh, can we have Cheerios? And they're looking at me like, that's that's not Cheerios, dude, that's Cocoa Puffs. It's it's so simple, but these were little things that made me feel kind of strange. And it would be a variety of things where I just say a word and my, you know, very much homeland grown American friends would be like, hey, dude, what, what are you talking about? Like, you're using the wrong words. And so I'd go back to my parents like, oh, you're teaching me the wrong stuff. I look funny. Now I'm that like funny friend. You know, I'm the weird guy. But um, now I can look at it as humorous. But, you know, back in my teenage years, it was devastating. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to be ostracized. And so so all this to say is it's a complex dynamic growing up with. uh, It's a unique identity that we're building and we're hybridizing different worlds within ourselves. But the main thesis of the book is that it's on me as the, the child to then integrate myself both into my family's culture and into my adopted nation, right, where I'm living. And out of that, I'm going to self-actualize. I'm going to come up with the solutions that are inherent to my talents, to my interests, to my voice. You know, So for me now, it's book writing. For someone else, it could be dance, it could be poetry, it could be being a police officer or a politician, I don't know. Mm. But the point is, 
that it needs to come from a place of wanting to reduce pain in people's lives and to bring light, to bring education, to illuminate dark places. That, that I just believe, is the core of humanity, that we're here to augment one another, not detract. Because if we have a scarcity mindset, that means I have to take from someone else, otherwise they're going to take from me. But with an abundance mindset, it's that I'm going to bring something to the table and you're going to bring something to the table. And next thing you know, we have an amalgamation of cultures that coexist together and aren't at each other's throats. You know, there's not this painful, you know, we're in a, a fight with one another. And this is, again, this is going to look different for different people. And I only know my perspective and I have to be, I have to be honest about that, right? Because I can't put words in other people's mouths. But, but what I hope is that there is this understanding that we do, we all have capacity to bring healing and growth and positivity into whatever situation we're in, whatever nation we're currently in and whatever nation we came from. There's got to be a way to be a catalyst of positivity because if not, what's the point of humanity, you know? And so, and so I just, in this book, I want to encourage people who are the child of immigrants to, again, enrich themselves, read books, pursue education, pursue authentic interests and hobbies be a unique individual even if you're from a collectivist culture you got to learn to balance the two because you know you are a single person as an entity but you also belong to a fabric of a culture but it's when we don't know how to balance the two that we feel totally lost and frustrated um and that's that's definitely a frustration that even my parents don't understand because <laughs> you know, why aren't you acting like how people act like from our culture? And it's like, mom, dad, <laughs> like I'm in America. I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm living this life here as well. Um, and they do understand that, but they didn't experience that to the degree that, that we did as children here. Um, and, uh, but you know, they did everything they, they knew how to do. And they, my parents wanted us to assimilate and, you know, teach them the proper English for words, right? Teach them the culture. Uh, they didn't come in and say, okay, we're in America, but we're just going to huddle over here in our corner and not talk to anyone. Like, you know, they mm. came to the States knowing it's the melting pot and that's important too. And I, I believe that, look, if you're, you know, if your parents escaped a bad situation where they could have died on the way out, they did it because they love us. They, you know, they want us to be safe. Like what parent wouldn't, you know, they want us to live in a place where we can find love, where we can find joy, where we can self-express and not be hurt just for the color of our skin or the, the dialect that we speak with, you know, a, a parent loves their child. Um, the question is, how do we then navigate that to, to just create something great out of that? Um, and that's unique to everybody. Sorry to ramble so long about that. but No, I, I found it so valuable. Thank you. And an amazing world we'd have if everybody could have that view and that compassion. When did you make the decision to leave the army? And, and did you know, did you have a plan of what you were going to do next? So I, the lockdowns happened with COVID, the pandemic, while, while I was in the military. And it really... 
it really altered my perspective because, you know, I experienced a version of the military that most people haven't. And a lot of my friends who've been in for 10, 20 years told me, like, you're not seeing the real military. This is a military under a lockdown. And I made the decision during the lockdown that, hey, you know, I don't know if this this is necessarily for me. Let me take a step back and look into the reserves because the reserves would have more freedom of movement. Um, I could pursue my passion and my career um, and then have the military as a kind of a part-time um, gig, if you will. And so that's that speaks more to, to me right now. And I'm in the middle of looking at a reserve contract. Um, I know that the connection I had with the soldiers is pretty strong. I, I was the type of leader who... I was very approachable and accessible to the soldiers under me. And so I know that that not a lot of people do that. Some leaders, they, you know, they say there's degrees of separation for a reason, but you know, during the lockdowns, I, I had to make sure the men and women under me had healthy mindsets, you know, that they weren't going to hurt themselves because, you know, around the world, we all saw what the lockdowns did to, to people. And, um, so I do miss that. And I, I know, I now know my leadership style is very close to subordinates, if you will, the people that I'm leading. And, and I do want to relive that again. I'm currently, I do have an exciting opportunity coming up uh, to serve America in a different capacity. I, I can't say too much of it now, but it's sort of adjacent to the military. Um, but I, I am looking at a, at a reserve contract as well. Um, Perhaps with the army, maybe a different branch, but I, I definitely feel that that connection with the troops was just is just genuine and real, and, and I miss it. Um, but I am torn because, yeah, I wish I had joined earlier in life. I wish I joined in my twenties, but again, I wasn't in the right mindset. I would not have been a healthy soldier or person to to lead at all. And um, but yeah, the journey's definitely not over. It's just uh, kind of turning the page right now and. There's some exciting things for 2024 around the corner. Well, is there anything that you can tell us outside of, of what you've just mentioned, like in terms of you you said you're writing that book? If, what else is coming up? Yeah, so writing, so the, the book uh, is called Bridging Worlds. I'm working on that one. I just released a book on jujitsu and anxiety management uh, this week. So that's live now. Is that the Black Belt yeah, Mindset? So- that's the black belt mindset. Come on, Dan. Yep. Let's promote these books. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm working on an audiobook version of the Backpack to Rucksack book. Um, I did get an offer uh, to look into creating a podcast for um, an online um, radio, like a, a radio streaming service. So we'll see if I have the time for that. But I, I'd love to have these discussions more frequently. Um, but the the other position is, is like I said, with the with the government. I I'm going to be training for that for several months next year, um, and then we'll see we'll we'll see how things develop globally. But um, yeah, I definitely want to have some discussions that could lead to potential deployments and whatnot. But I, I think that whatever I'm going to be doing down the road, the common thread is going to be mental health. You know, that's I want to be the person where when I walk in a room with whatever uniform I'm wearing that I people around me know that I'm invested in their well-being because that's going to strengthen the mission for sure whatever the mission is however tactical it has to be if if we lead with with care and concern for those who are doing the job who are willing to risk their lives 
they're going to go above and beyond and they're going to do their utmost when they know they're they're with a leader who's enabling them you know and so i just i hope i can live that out you know i don't want to just be someone who writes about it or who who fakes it on paper it needs to be something that is felt by those to my left and right you know and uh that's just really on my heart is i'm just still inspired by these men and women who are willing to risk their lives you know to protect others and so yeah i'm excited to to put on a couple uniforms next year and um if if i can eventually say more about it i will um but for now maybe just stay stay in touch and and that'll build the excitement but i I do want to drop more books along the way um and i hope that they're just shining lights for people who who feel like they're kind of stuck in a in a fog or in some darkness that's that's like my ultimate goal is, is to leave some books you know behind you already have done that and i found your book so interesting and and relevant outside of the military these are skills and leadership approaches that just seem universal that we could all have a more resilient and healthy life if we can follow these so thank you so much for everything that you put out in your words and also on your podcasts and speaking as well i think it's really valuable thank you i appreciate you letting me ramble so much i realized i took all the air in the room but it was it was awesome getting it was so interesting talking to you so thank you for everything that you talked about i didn't want to interrupt because i just found it so useful and so interesting there's a clock that that ticks in my mind where it's like hey man you're going over you you gotta let them share let the other person yeah so it's funny i want to just ask the questions and hear what you have to say it's not about me so i'm happy with that (laughs) but thank you thank you so much for your time and hopefully we'll see you in the uk at some point too Oh, I'd love to get back out there. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.